gotta get them vaccinated. Hey everybody, it's Jeff Horwich, this is In The Loop, a little bit different way to start the show here today, a little offspring, plus swine flu reference, and um, pardon my lingering cold, and I'm sorry about last week, the cold just knocked me out so bad we had to just bag the podcast, nobody would want to listen to me anyway, I don't know if that's changed at all today, but I'm back at work, so we've been doing interviews and making music, and we've got a show for you. Uh, I almost kind of wish it had been swine flu and not... Uh, just a head cold because that would mean that I wouldn't yet get swine flu. I'd be free of that uh, cloud hanging over me. But no, I'm still vulnerable. And I've been sort of musically inspired a little bit this week, playing around with various things um, with regard to this American swine flu vaccine circus. Disillusioning circus is maybe the best phrase I could come up with. This frenzied rush for what seems like, you know, enough swine flu vaccine to protect perhaps, you know, the people in the houses on one side of my block. Uh, so here's here's musical take version two, um, more from the kind of commercial jingle vein. What would you do for a swine flu shot? Mercifully short, that one. You know, I'm not exaggerating when I say that for me at least, nothing has really undermined my faith in this country in recent times, like the fact that we all need to sit around watching an insufficient supply of chicken eggs where we're incubating the virus, the vaccine, and then by some indecipherable system we are magically and arbitrarily bestowing tiny batches of vaccine on scattered clinics and schools around the country it's disillusioning uh, to say the least Uh, and of course i'm haunted by the sense that if this were a more deadly disease uh, a lot of us could uh, be dead Uh, you know in the meantime as it is we're all just basically waiting around for the the reaper of fever vomiting and muscle soreness to knock on our door which is no fun either Um, and it's like a madhouse when people catch wind of a batch of vaccine, at least here in the uh, Twin Cities. And I have a young son, so we're we're playing this game. Um, Which brings us nicely to Swine Flu Vaccine Musical Take number three, third and final. Uh, Inspired, partially I should say, by the fact that I saw Will Ferrell's Land of the Lost the other weekend. And and as part of one plot point, it keeps playing this particular song from a chorus line over and over. So that's been stuck in my head. Uh, Take that plus Swine Flu Vaccine and here you go. buddy Anna stepping in for the solo there. Way to belt. You know, there's this whole hierarchy to who gets the vaccine and uh, it can be kind of controversial depending on where you are on the list. I talked with a, a pharmacist the other day who wrote in because he was annoyed that yet again, the pharmacists don't get no respect. Pharmacists are meeting the public every day and getting coughed on and breathed on. Uh-huh. And so it would make sense to get those people vaccinated. It's Brad Teske, small-town pharmacist in Litchfield, Minnesota. Here's the thing. Unless they work in a hospital, pharmacists are shut out of that first big tier of people who are supposed to get the vaccine. Uh, Brad tells me we're not only dealing with a vaccine shortage, there's also a shortage of certain antiviral drugs. And at his pharmacy, they're actually having to mix up their own in some cases. But this this gets even better. 
I saw this week, manufacturers are now warning of a coming shortage of hand sanitizer. How depressing is this? We, we don't even have enough hand sanitizer. At least we've got enough condescending corporate posters showing you the complex four-step process of how to wash your hands when you finish in the bathroom. Thank you to my company and everybody else's company for reminding us how that's done. Uh, there were, by the way, some other musical vaccine ideas that folks floated out on our Facebook page. Uh, Hit me with your best shot. Uh, Never Gonna Get It by En Vogue. Remember that song? I can't think of the last time I thought of that song. Anyway, uh, good ideas, but fortunately, probably for all of us, there are only so many hours in the day. So that's it for my musical swine flu uh, diversions. And in fact, it's it's time to change the subject here as we move into our show. Uh, here's a sunshiny headline that uh, is sure to brighten your day. The IRS wants to do a better job at going after sneaky rich people. And who wouldn't love that? And like uh, many of those sneaky rich people, I was reading the Wall Street Journal the other day, and I noticed uh, the IRS is setting up a new unit. It's called the Global High Wealth Industry Group. And the point, uh, I gather, is to go after uh, multimillionaires and, and billionaires who get uh, creative with their tax filing. So let's talk about that with Tax Girl, alter ego Kelly Phillips Herb, a tax attorney in Philadelphia who blogs about tax-related issues at taxgirl.com. Kelly, thanks very much for coming on In The Loop. Thanks for having me. So give me a sense, because I'm just an ordinary, you know, do my 1040 on TurboTax kind of guy. What are some of the marvelous tricks and and wizardry that uh, the IRS is trying to get a handle on here? Mostly what they're trying to do is address the um, techniques that the really wealthier are using to avoid reporting their income in the U.S. These wealthy folks are setting up accounts in tax havens. Um, most significantly, I guess, is Luxembourg and Switzerland. That's kind of where the IRS is, is really targeting lately. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're, they're creating partnerships and setting up these offshore trusts and otherwise just putting their um, money in these uh, principalities and countries that have really tough banking secrecy laws so that they don't have to report those assets or that income, and that is illegal. Hmm. And what kind of position are you in as a, as a tax attorney? I mean, do people come to you and say, hey, you know, my, uh, my friends are doing such and such. How can I, you know, how can you make it happen for me? What I do have um, is there was a recent amnesty program that uh, the IRS was running that allows allowed people who haven't uh, previously reported their income to come forward and make reports in order to escape prosecution. And um, I did have people coming and saying, you know, now that there's amnesty, how do I make things right? Because they're a little frightened going forward. Because the amnesty program is really a kind of a shot in the air from the IRS warning folks that they were going to be pretty tough. The way that whole amnesty thing played out, did it give you some sense of just how big an issue this is, how much money the government has been missing out on? Absolutely. I think the IRS was a little shocked even. Um, When this amnesty program this year, I believe the number was something, um, I think Commissioner Shulman said 7,500 that came forward. It was just shocking how many people. And I think it was was kind of because of all the publicity surrounding the UBS, especially the UBS um, issues in Switzerland. And this, the UBS thing, just to refresh people's memories, this is basically the U.S. government saying to UBS, you need to give us some information about uh, these accounts that you have because some Ab- of these people absolutely. probably owe us money. The IRS realized that it wasn't just a couple of folks going over and putting their money in the bank and, and walking away. It was actually these um, really sophisticated schemes where uh, uh, these accountants and, and bank executives and other folks were wooing uh, U.S. taxpayers over to the bank. The, the numbers on that were actually frightening because 
the bank, um, UBS Bank in Switzerland, estimated that there were 52,000 U.S. taxpayer accounts at that bank. Is this a political thing where the Obama administration maybe comes in and they just care a lot more about this uh, than previous administrations? What's going on? I don't think so. I think actually what really makes it um, a popular thing to do right now is that we're in a bad economy. Mm -hmm. And I think that's more where it's coming from. I mean, obviously, right near an election year, like uh, 2010, it's a whole lot better if you're um, a member of Congress to vote yes on let's get tough on tax evaders than it is to let's vote yes on raising taxes. How much are we talking about a, a, a sort of a gray area here? I mean, it's one thing to think of this in terms of black and white, certainly on some income, you know, in some transactions you owe taxes and some that you don't. Is there an awful lot of uh, still fuzziness here, though, in, in what the government is going to be attempting to do? Yeah, definitely. I think there is because, you know, the reality is that there's always going to be ways to shift around income and people who have the means are always going to be looking for ways to lower their tax burdens. And, you know, under under the tax code, you absolutely have the right to do whatever you can legally. You know, it's very clear, for example, that uh, not reporting offshore income is against the rules. However, some of these other tricks that folks are using in terms of creating certain kinds of trusts or setting up these multi-tiers of partnerships to um, shift uh, taxes into non-taxing jurisdictions, and you know, then it does get a little fuzzy. So yeah, there is this gray area because the more money and resources that you can throw at trying to figure out how to lower your tax burden, you know, the more creative mm-hmm. you, you may be. And, and uh, it does pose challenges to the IRS in terms of how to, how to put up a really consolidated and effective um, front and, and without, you know, alienating large parts of the population, because what we wouldn't want to have happen is people just um, leave the country or, or uh, engaging other kinds of methods to not uh, pay their fair share. What's your sense of what specifically this, uh, this unit, the Global High Wealth Industry Group, is going to do? Um, that's a really good question. Uh, one of their strategies is clearly to look beyond a regular 1040. They're going to start kind of assembling other documents together. They're going to start looking at these partnership returns in conjunction with your regular 1040. It's not someone's just choosing not to put a couple million dollars on a 1040. It's that most of the time there's fairly sophisticated techniques for what they're doing. And I think that the group um, is going to have a little bit more of resources in terms of kind of pulling together this broader investigation. And I also think that they probably will, if I had to guess, um, that I think that they're going to start targeting some additional banks. You've got to live with these changes, whether you like them or not, but I'm wondering, do you like them? Gosh, I don't know. I like that this idea of enforcement makes people feel that things are more fair, because I can tell you that my clients feel like it's more fair if everybody's looked at, you know, as opposed to, you know, a, a certain group of people. So, I think that this notion that they're saying, you know, we've been ignoring you rich taxpayers for years. Um, We know that you've had accounts over in Switzerland for years, but now we're actually going to do something about it. I think it makes people who are middle class feel that it's more fair. Um, You know, do I personally like the changes? I don't know. I think some of them are kind of draconian when you start looking at the reporting requirements. I have clients that um, are increasingly worried that they're going to inadvertently break the rules. So I hate that the it, it feels like the IRS is kind of targeting enforcement, which I think is good. I hope that what doesn't happen as a result is that ordinary taxpayers kind of get caught up in this trap that isn't really meant to trap them at all. Well, Kelly, this has been good. Thank you very much. 
Kelly Phillips Herb is TaxGirl at TaxGirl.com and uh, on Twitter and such. So here's the first installment uh, of a little concept that we're going to scatter through the episode today. Uh, a little while ago, we asked our, our peeps on Facebook, what questions would you want to ask your fellow listeners? I don't know. It's kind of a slow day for us. And we were like, hey, you, you do the work. Um, and uh, one interesting question someone pitched out there was, how has where you're from uh, or where you've lived shaped the person that you are? Lots of people can answer that. So we put that one out, and it took us a little while to get back to it. But this week, Sandin followed up with some of the more intriguing people that we heard from. And so here's the first guy, uh, boiled down to bite size. My name is Ken Illinemi, and I am from uh, northern Minnesota. Everyone always says, what small town are you from? But it wasn't really a town. It was a rural country area. Probably about the closest town was about seven or eight miles away. And now I am in Hollywood and live in Long Beach, just a few blocks from the ocean. From living in the middle of nowhere, you know, on a farm life growing up, I think one of the biggest things that you learn is community. You know, neighbors helping neighbors. After our field work was done, if we had time left over, I would help neighbors field and farm work. And then in addition to that, relatives, too. I always went every summer to help my uncle in North Dakota. I think a lot of that community translates into values. It wasn't so much your own wealth, but betterment of the entire community. So... When I translate that to Southern California, it's altogether different in the fact that, you know, your status, your car that you drive, how much money you make, and it's more related directly to you, not the greater community level. I definitely think that you could look at things on a deeper level in Southern California, not just the material, but to look on your neighbor in a different way. By giving to them and by serving them, you'll also get back a richer life, a more fulfilled life. Ken Yelenemy, there's a name, I love it. Uh, country boy, in the loop listener, just like you, staying grounded in shallow Hollywood. And we'll have two more folks talking on this question, uh, how where you're from has shaped you before we get to the end of the show. And now to international news in a way that only we would bother. Uh, the Afghan runoff this week turned into the Afghan blowoff. Uh, all this work to get a runoff and then the guy pulls out. Uh, everybody's just like, uh, well... Okay, then. Um, The other guy wins. And it's five more years of everyone's favorite sharply-dressed Pashtun. Here's a small tune to mark this big moment in history. Thought maybe for a minute we wouldn't be stuck in it with Karzai. Had just a glimmer of a chance we might just wash our hands of Karzai John Kerry worked hard for that runoff vote but with no Abdullah squared that's all she wrote so we'll smile instead say we're glad to be in bed with Karzai Get used to the cape because there's no escape from Karzai Karzai Beholden to the thugs his brother's dealing drugs that's Karzai. Karzai. Karzai Doesn't have control and he can't clamp down But it looks like he's the only fez in town We're probably screwed, but he's our cobble dude That's Karzai What'd you say? Yeah, he's illegit, but he's the best we get It's Karzai Not a thing we can do, cause we're stuck like glue with Karzai
Yeah, from Offspring to Broadway to Motown, I can be totally uncool in all kinds of different genres of music. And uh, today is kind of a special occasion because we are not, in fact, going to just flit away from our little musical episode here to um, dive into some other subject. We're actually going to stay with this and say, okay, we had our fun, and now... Let's get a little more serious and talk about Afghanistan and Pakistan. Uh, ben Arnoldy is a staff writer with the Christian Science Monitor based in that region, and he has just flown back into Kabul for, uh, as you just put it to me, right, Ben, the uh, the runoff that wasn't. Exactly. Well, thank you very much for taking some time for In the Loop. Of all the things that you could cover now that you're back in Afghanistan, what are you really looking forward to to exploring? What are the angles that you're going to be taking on? Well, tomorrow I take a trip into Panjshir, which is one of the northern provinces where President Karzai's main rival, Abdullah Abdullah, got more than 60% of the vote. And so I really want to go there and just take the temperature of how people are feeling about how this election turned out. I mean, their guy essentially quit the race because he didn't feel the process was fair. And talking to his supporters in Kabul, at least, uh, the anger seems to be running kind of high. So I want to get a sense of, is that true up in northern Afghanistan? Because, uh, frankly, the U.S. can't really afford another region of Afghanistan to sort of have a lot of alienated people. Seems to me the, the vibe around Karzai used to be quite good. You know, when he first began that first term as president, he was, uh, at least from an American perspective, like he was, he was our guy. What has gone so wrong in the meantime that now he's very clearly not our choice to lead that uh, country? In the beginning, it was sort of a dream come true, because he was Pashtun. The plurality of the population here is Pashtun. It wasn't going to fly to have a non-Pashtun. So he fit the bill. His biography fit the bill. His strengths are very much political dealing and accommodation and deal-making of sorts. And that's very useful for, you know, coalescing a brand-new government, bringing people from different camps together. The problem was he's so good at deal-making, that, for instance, in Afghanistan, the governors of the various provinces are appointed. They're not elected by the people. And he would use those governorships as powerful patronage rewards to people who would support him. And you'd get corrupt people in the government. And as time wore on, it became clear that it wasn't helping combat an insurgency when the insurgents could you know, rely on a local population that was disaffected from the government. And so suddenly there was a push on, okay, we've got to improve the quality of the Afghan government. And sort of the suggestions for reform very much cut into his method of governing. Uh, and that's where the two sides really came to loggerheads. I want to ask you a little about Pakistan, because you've been covering that intently as well yeah. for the last few months. Um, as you follow the coverage of this region in recent months, there's sort of this this kind of meme in there that, that I might think of as kind of burgeoning conventional wisdom that uh, Pakistan is actually the greater threat between Pakistan and Afghanistan. That's the greater sort of potential for chaos and complete meltdown in the region. Do you agree with that? Um, it's so hard to choose, isn't it? <laughs> right. <laughs> What's the greater potential I, you know, for disaster? One of the experts that I call on a lot put it to me this way, that Okay, you're worried about al-Qaeda, you're worried about the Taliban leadership, you're worried about nuclear weapons getting in the hands of bad guys. The zip code for all that stuff is in Pakistan. You know, I, I agree with that assessment. But the way you phrase the question makes me pause because I don't 
think Pakistan faces a meltdown, whereas I do think Afghanistan is kind of in the middle of a meltdown. So in other words, the people the U.S. really would like to get a handle on and are worried the most about, they have their havens and they basically are based in Pakistan. And so in that sense, Pakistan is the greater problem. But in terms of their ability to take over a state or so significant chaos, that's really happening over in Afghanistan. So kind of a tough call. When you fly uh, into Afghanistan, is this a, I don't know, is, is, is this a fun assignment for you? I mean, is, it, is Kabul at least, is it a fun place to be in any sense? Or is this just kind of a, kind of a drag? Gosh, <laughs> I guess to be honest, it was very exciting the first few trips to Afghanistan. You know, growing up, I used to play with my brothers uh, the Risk board game. And Afghanistan was always one of those countries on the board. I thought, oh, it sounds so exotic and interesting. And so it was like a dream come true to come here and see this place. I'd say around the fourth or fifth trip, coming just to Kabul to cover this political mess, uh, it started to wear on me. I mean, it's just, I mean, who cares about me? I'm just a journalist. You, you talk to people on the street here, they're tired of this election. The price of vegetables and basic groceries has gone way up because of all this political instability. And people are just tired of it. And as for me, you know, I'm, I'm kind of relieved that this particular story seems to be coming a little bit too close and maybe get more of a chance to get outside of Kabul again because there's some really, truly beautiful rural places in Afghanistan. So it's about, uh, I don't know, 8 or 9 p.m. where you are now, I think. What do you what do you do at night in Kabul? Duck and cover? <laughs> no, I mean, one nice thing about Kabul is that there's, there's a lot of folks who are sort of expats here. And so that creates a certain infrastructure in the city to cater to that. So there are restaurants, like Chinese restaurants and Lebanese and every kind of food. Mm. You can even find some alcohol. It's a little bit difficult because it's a Muslim country, but they will serve it in some places if you're a Westerner. I wouldn't say, you know, there's tons of nightlife and it's, it's all that fun, but it is kind of nice to meet people from all over the world and, and sort of hear their stories. And it, it makes it a little more livable. Well, it's good to connect with you, Ben, and I'll uh, look forward to talking with you again. Yeah, it's fun. That's Ben Arnoldy. He's a staff writer for the Christian Science Monitor, and he's covering uh, Pakistan, Afghanistan, uh, based out of New Delhi for the most part, but uh, we talked to him in Kabul, the Afghan capital. So how convenient now that we're able to move into the next installment of this How I'm Shaped by Where I'm From thing, uh, because this comes from a listener whose experiences and observations are shaped by growing up in that part of the world. My name is Sami Zaman. I was actually born in South Carolina, but I grew up in Rawalpindi, Pakistan. I grew up speaking English, and then we moved to Pakistan. It was kind of odd. Like, Urdu is language to speak in Pakistan. I'm very fluent in Urdu, but I still speak with an accent. And so even though I lived there for 17 years, I'd go into a store, and all my friends would tell me to keep quiet because the shopkeeper would hike the prices up thinking I was a tourist. So <laughs> there were you know, odd, funny things like that. I, I, the term misfit seems kind of applicable. I think it's an advantage because at a certain point, you're forced to see things from another person's point of view. Seeing two sides of an argument, seeing two ways of doing something, you just see that things are different, not necessarily better or worse. That does give you a different perspective. 
Sami Zaman. Thanks a lot. Cosmopolitan dude, but he's living at the moment in the western burbs here in the Twin Cities. We're going to have one more of these. Uh, how Where I'm From Shaped Me Things at the end of the show. And at this point, you might be wondering, how did people even know this question existed in order to answer it in the first place? And, well, I think I might have mentioned it on the podcast a couple episodes back. For the most part, people got back to us because they saw it in uh, our email list. And you can join that. If you're not on it already, please do. Go to intheloopshow.net and look on the right-hand side of the page. You'll see something that says Join the Network. I think I also posted it to Facebook, too. But that's kind of, you know, here and then gone, stuff that gets posted to Facebook. So you can be sure to get all these... uh, ideas and questions forwarded to you if you're on our email list, which I write to once a week. Now, sort of like uh, the tax thing earlier in the show, here's another development that that might have escaped your notice this week. It almost escaped mine if I hadn't spotted it on an inside page of the newspaper. Seemed worth checking in on. Uh, Maybe my profession makes me uh, biased that I think this is particularly important or interesting. Uh, But for journalists, this is kind of monumental. For the first time ever, Uh, the stars seem aligned in D.C. to pass what's called a federal shield law. Now, shield law would actually carve out an exception in the law of the United States for journalists who have information that the government or the court system wants to know. Under a shield law, they and their newsrooms uh, are protected from fines or prison time. Uh, And you can uh, keep your confidential sources secret. Um, Now, there would be some exceptions for information pertaining to national security. Uh, Certainly a reporter wouldn't be able to sit on the time and place of a planned terrorist attack, for example. They're working out all the details. Uh, But this is a a pretty big deal. So we got someone in for a few minutes here to chat about it. Chris Eisen is a professor of journalism at the University of Minnesota. He won a Pulitzer for his investigative reporting for the Minneapolis Star Tribune. Uh, He's also the favorite professor of our one-eighth time in-the-loop employee uh, and our official BFF, Anna Wagle. So we thought we'd have him come on in here for a few minutes and talk to us about the uh, this whole shield law thing. Chris, thanks very much for joining In The Loop. Thanks for having me. So it's uh, it's fairly clear why reporters would want this, why news organizations would want this kind of thing. You, know, you can, can take in confidential information. You don't have to uh, uh, go to jail to protect it. What's the argument for most of our listeners who are not reporters, ordinary citizens? What's the big civic argument in favor of a shield law? Well, I think the biggest argument is that there are times when you need sources to give you information who, in giving you that information, could risk their own jobs, sometimes their own safety. And if we couldn't give those people a guarantee of anonymity, uh, we can't get important information to do our jobs for citizens. Clearly, many people in Congress and, and the Obama administration are basically saying right now that rigorous free press is important to uh, you know our democracy, and part of that is being able to collect information and being able to protect the sources of that information. Well, that happens now, right? Obviously, you've done a lot of investigative reporting with uh, uh, confidential sources. What's what's the big difference once there's a shield law in place? Well, most states do have a shield law, and that does help in a lot of reporting that goes on right now. What what uh, the current issue is, is is whether there should be a federal shield law that would protect journalists in federal court. So state shield laws won't protect you, say, from the FBI if, they, if there's something that, Correct. that they want to know if, that, that a reporter knows. Right. If you can keep things in a state court and your state has a shield law, you're usually protected. Not always. There are cases where uh, a shield law was not enough to protect their sources. It's not always ironclad, but it certainly is helpful. And I'm not sure all journalists feel exactly alike on this issue. There are many who, and I can, I tend to be one, and 
in some respects that I think that we use unnamed sources too much, that the media uses unnamed sources too much. It's too easy to do, and, and it hurts your credibility in a story if, if you have sources, you know, and nobody knows who they are and can't judge whether they're credible or not. As the discussions around this bill happen, what are you seeing in terms of how a journalist is going to be defined? Yeah, that's a big question. problem today is we don't know who, what a journalist is or who a journalist is. And with the power of the Internet becoming more and more clear every day, a lot of people can be independent journalists, work out of the basement. One big question is, are they journalists? Um, the latest information to come out of Senate leadership is that they want to define a journalist quite broadly. So it would include bloggers, freelancers, anybody who's in the process of gathering news to be considered a journalist for the purpose of a shield law. So even after this uh, gets spit out, as all things do, from this uh, process of compromise in committees uh, in Congress, uh, do you think journalists on the whole are going to be uh, happy with this thing? Is any shield law better than uh, the current situation? Any movement toward giving journalists more power and more ability to get important news out there is going to be seen as a positive thing. And, you know, everybody's going to be able to find examples to show how the use of unnamed sources is abused. And it is abused at times. Of course, it's abused mostly in Washington, where lawmakers and presidential administrations, Republican and Democrat both, throw out information only on background every single day. Well, they use it to play political games. Sure, they'll send up trial balloons, and if it doesn't go over very well, they don't have to take responsibility for it, Mm -hmm. or they can leak nasty information and not have to stand behind it. And it's become so pervasive in Washington that it's hard for any journalist to say, no, I'm not taking that information off the record. So a cynic would say there's a reason that politicians might uh, be very much in favor of a shield law. Sure. Because they can talk all they want. A lot of them could have their names revealed in the courtroom, too, and a lot of them don't want that. Mm -hmm. So cynically, you could say that's good for their side, too. But while I think it's good if journalists could feel freer to gather information, even from unnamed sources, quite often, if you work a little harder, you can get somebody to put their name behind things. And you'd really rather do that kind of journalism. Chris, thanks very much for coming in to talk with me today. Happy to be here. It's Chris Sison from the uh, University of Minnesota, professor of journalism. the smarts laying it back as we near the end here. But before we do, remember we had this question out there. How has where you have lived shaped you? And we've been hearing answers over the course of the episode. So we got one more for you, and this one was particularly intriguing when we just sort of looked at the outlines of it. This is uh, Diane, and there's a bit of a setup here. Four years ago, Diane sold her home, just sold it, and she bought instead a 27-foot RV. And she has worked with homeless folks, homeless populations, for 20 years and decided to use this phase of her life to travel the country in the RV collecting stories from homeless youth for books and documentary films that she's working on. Uh, So certainly a deep, deep commitment to her cause and her way of life. And Diane quite naturally says that being on the road this way has changed her. This is Diane Nyland, and for the past four years, I've been living out of a little RV. You know, I I had to really pare down stuff when I was doing this, because when you start looking at really what the storage capacity is in these little rigs, you you just kind of go, oh, (laughs) stuff really bothers me now. And so when somebody, you know, is trying to be nice to me and gives me something, it's, it's, it's harder for me to accept it because 
I have to think, where am I going to put this? You know, it's made me a little bit more hyper aware of, you know, how much I have. And, you know, it makes me a little bit more sensitive to people who have a lot less than I do. And then the other thing that I, I have learned to do, and I, you know, I, I'm almost ashamed to say this, but I really didn't listen as well as I've been working on in, in the past four years on the road. I have nobody to listen to as I drive so that when I get to another human being that's in my path, I can actually say, whoa, this is time where you're going to interact and, and listen to what the person is saying. And it, it does help me focus. Diane Nyland. We caught up with her in the parking lot of a monastery in Chicago, which I gather is kind of her home base. Maybe not the last we've heard from Diane. Uh, Sounds like she's working on some interesting stuff. If you want to check out more of what she has been doing, you can go to her website. It is hearus.us. And that will do it for this episode of In the Loop. Got some good help this week from Anna Wegel singing a bit at the top of the program, helping to book some folks, do some research. Anna, we love you. Nice job. Sandin Totten, of course, kicking a little bootay behind the scenes, editing a buttload of interviews this week. Uh, he produces the show along with me. I'm Jeff Horwich. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And thanks, very briefly here, let me say thanks to everybody who clicked our little I Support In The Loop link during the most recent member drive here at Minnesota Public Radio. Just our way to, for the very first time, start to kind of log whether people consider In The Loop an important reason that they contribute to public radio. And certainly for a number of you, at least, Uh, You warmed our hearts by showing us that, yes, indeed, we are a part of what you love about this place. So we're grateful, and I'll talk to you next time.